the first reading is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. The second scripture reading is taken from the book of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, 
which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and by your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of the angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Is this going to work? Ah, here we go. It is appropriate uh, that the chairs are missing this morning, I think, and I think you'll understand that once we get into the topic. How many of you were here last spring? Can I see your hands? Hard to see. Maybe half of you? Well, at that time, I gave a chapel talk that resulted from a question that a student had asked me only a few years before. The student was a good friend and not usually a whiner, but on that day he was waxing on, complaining really that no one ever answered his questions or talked about the issues that he wanted addressed. And so in a moment of bold naivete and trying to be a good friend, I told him that I would speak on anything he wanted the next time I spoke in chapel, that he could choose my chapel talk. And do you remember what he chose? Anybody remember? Sex. You got it. Well, that got me into lots of trouble because I wound up having to give a chapel talk on that topics of all dreaded topics, sex. But it also started a tradition, and the tradition is that when the provost speaks in chapel, the topic is students' choice. Not always, by the way. I get to pick my own speaking material once in a while. 
But frequently, perhaps most of the time, when I speak to you this year in chapel, which will be about once a month, I will attempt to address an issue or question which has come to me in one form or another from some of you. And such is the case today. So, student's choice. And the question is, are you ready? Why do we have required chapel at Westmont College? Almost, almost as bad as sex. That's not a new question, by the way. We asked it when I was a student at Westmont, I can tell you that. And that was, well, it was a long time ago. In fact, it was so long ago that the word like was like, like a real word. <laughs> ah, yes, those were the days of rich and meaningful language. When we had words like groovy and far out. I'm digressing. But the point is, this is not a new question. It's a very old question. And more than that, I think it's a nearly universal question asked at every Christian college that I'm aware of. Indeed, over 10 years ago, while I was on the faculty of another institution, a student came up to me after class one day and blurted out, Dr. Gady, why in the world do we have required chapel at this institution anyway? Without much hesitation and without much grace either, I blurted back, I don't know. Why do we have to eat? And then while my student stood there scratching his head and looking at me as if I was from Mars, I bid him farewell and walked back to my office. I have always regretted that conversation, not because of what I said but the way I said it and also what I did immediately thereafter, I walked away. I gave a quick answer to an important question, and then I just left. And whether my answer was good or not, my behavior was definitely not good, and my student did not get the conversation which he deserved. This morning, I want to make amends for that error and re-enter that same conversation with you. I'm doing it now because I know it's a question that some of you have. I've talked to you about it. It was a question, again, which I had when I was at Westmont. So here's the question, as delivered by my student a few years ago. Why do we have required chapel? Good question, and I think it's important to ask it in two parts. First, why do we have chapel at all? And second, why is it required? Let me begin with a story, true story. A few years ago, I lost a very close friend by the name of Jerry Davey. If I were still in high school, I'd say that Jerry was my best friend. But I'm too old for that now, and I have too many good friends, but he was a friend for over 20 years. And though he and his family had moved from New England to Philadelphia to Chicago, through it all, we remained very close. The funny thing is, Jerry and I were different in many ways. We rarely agreed about politics, for example. And our jobs were quite different. He was a successful businessman while I was just an old egghead. But our families loved each other, and we did too, and most importantly, we both loved the same Lord. And about him, about Jesus, Jerry and I could talk forever. What he was doing in our lives and not doing. But mostly, what was right in the eyes of the Lord? What did it mean to honor him with our lives in these days at this time? I cherished those conversations, 
And through the years, Jerry taught me a lot about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ as a husband, as a friend, and neighbor. And then, just about two years ago, it all came to a crashing halt. Jerry died after battling cancer for a year and a half. And this person on whom I had leaned for wisdom and support was gone. Death always raises lots of questions, but especially so when it's the death of someone close, and especially when it seems premature. Those questions were raised for me at the age of 17, when a friend died in Vietnam. They came again at the age of 30, when my father passed away. And they continue to bubble up to the surface again every time I lose someone by the hand of death, whether it's a friend at 17 or a middle-aged Jerry Davey, it doesn't really matter. A death, especially a premature one, is just, well, it's obscene. But the overwhelming thing for me at Jerry's death was not the unanswered questions or even the pain of death itself, but the suffocating sense of loss, of losing a friend forever. Death separates us from the ones we love. It cuts through our assumed world of relationships, those people whom we take so for granted that we hardly bat an eye at hurting them, it cuts through that world and screams at us, fragile, handle with care, not forever. And when we come face to face with that reality and our own stupidity at ever thinking otherwise, we are left, well, we're left feeling very much alone. Which is how I felt when I said my last goodbye to Jerry on Thursday night as he lay dying in a hospital bed in Portland, Maine. The feeling deepened on Friday morning when his daughter called and so told us that Jerry was gone. And it continued to haunt me through the weekend and right up until we gathered together for Jerry's funeral on Monday at noon in a quaint little church in New England. But then, then something happened, and something changed. What happened? Well, a multitude of those who had known and loved Jerry gathered together. That's what happened. In one place at one time in the name of our one God, we gathered together to celebrate one very generous gift to us. We came from all over the country, some by corporate jet from Chicago, Jerry was a big shot, and some by corporate jalopy from just down the road. Most of his friends were not. We were friends and neighbors, family members, and business associates. We were teachers and preachers, farmers and builders, employed and unemployed. One person was there who had led Jerry to the Lord in the first place. More than one was there who had learned the good news through Jerry some point thereafter. We came, we sang, we prayed, we cried, we talked, we listened. But most of all, we gave glory to God, who created Jerry in the first place, who blessed him with the grace of Jesus Christ, and bless the rest of us in the process. That's what happened on Monday at the funeral. So what changed? What changed as a result of that service? Me. I changed. I came to the service broken, defeated, and alone, and I left the service knowing absolutely that I was not. Had all my questions been answered? No. Had all the pain been taken away? Certainly not. But the service on Monday had confronted me with a reality far more profound than the one I experienced the Friday before, 
and ultimately far more genuine than anything I could have gotten on my own. You see, death is not the final reality. And for the saints, eternity will not be like what I experienced all alone on Friday after Jerry's death. It will be like Monday noon, when all the saints come together to celebrate what God has done on our behalf. That's the future, and that's the reality about which we need to be continually reminded. Why do we gather together for chapel on a regular basis? Because reality ain't what we think it is. Reality is not Friday morning after Jerry's death. Reality is not how you feel after you've flunked an exam or been dumped by a friend or rejected by a group. Nor, for that matter, is reality how you feel after you've aced an exam or achieved a personal best. The reality of the future is not about you alone doing or being anything. For the saints, for those who follow Jesus, reality is coming together and being together. The gathering of God's people in all their diversity, from every nation and every tribe, to honor and glorify Him. That's the reality. You and I on our own, that's hell. You and I together with all the saints, that's heaven. And every once in a while, because God is gracious and prone to give us what we need rather than what we deserve, you and I are going to see a bit of that heaven reflected in this place at this time. So why do we gather every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? Because this is what Christians do. Regardless of where they are in the globe, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their differences in tastes, fringe, major, politics, Christians gather together. And why do we do it? We do it because it reminds us of whose we are and whose we shall be forever. And that's, that's the most important thing that I'm going to say this morning, and unfortunately the most difficult to remember. You see, we come to this issue of chapel with all kinds of questions, don't we? Why is chapel required? Why do we sing praise songs or traditional hymns? Why do we use a piano or not use a piano? Why do we have speakers from one tradition and not another? Why do we use a pulpit on some days and not another? Why do we have convocations on some days and chapels on another? We come with all these questions, all of which are good and important questions on their own. We need to talk about them. But all of which can be a smokescreen for the fact that none of us think we really need this. We don't. We don't need chapel. We've got things to do, places to go, people to see. Until one day we wake up and discover those people whom we wanted to see are gone. And those things we wanted to do don't matter. And the place we're going is, of all things, a gathering of God's people, just like this place we didn't think we needed. The fact is, we do need this. We need it not to escape reality, but to find it. Not to avoid the world out there, but to keep our heads screwed on about whose world it is and to whom we belong. You see, when my student asked me a few years ago, why do we have to go to chapel? And I answered, why do we have to eat? I wasn't being facetious. I was being serious. For Christians, gathering together is no more of an option than eating. You don't have to do it, but in the end, it's a matter of life and death. And if you believe that, then all the other questions about chapel are interesting and important, but they are secondary, and that's where they ought to remain. Nevertheless, they're honest questions and recurring questions, and for that 
reason worth addressing. So in the time we have left, let me quickly answer the questions you wanted me to address in the first place, and I promise to be quick. First question, why do we have chapel on some days and convocations on others, and what's the difference? That's not a burning question for most of you, I realize. Many of you didn't even realize there was a difference until right now. And those that do, well, there's a lot of confusion about it. Recently, for example, I overheard someone say that chapel is a worship service and convocation is not. Bad answer. Biblical Christians begin with the assumption that everything that we do that honors the Lord is an act of worship. Whether it's raising our hands in praise or putting our hands to the plow, whether it's lifting our voices in alleluias or voicing our encouragement on the athletic field, whether it's listening to a sermon in chapel or a poetry reading in convocation or a lecture in physics, all of that can be and should be worship. What's special about chapel and convocation is not that they alone are worship, but that they alone are times of gathering, the gathering together of all the saints at Westmont. That's what makes them unique. So then what's the difference between chapel and convocation? Well, they have different objectives. Chapel is generally set aside for biblical teaching and corporate praise. It's a time of singing and praying and looking to God's word for direction. Chapel is more like what we typically think of as a worship service, but it's really only one form of worship service. Convocations, on the other hand, are not so much the study of God's word, but the study of God's world. You might say that chapel is about text, the biblical text, and convocation is about context. Its purpose is to bring some understanding of the world in which we live so that we can make good decisions about how to honor the Lord as citizens, scientists, consumers, stewards. Convocations are designed for breadth. The topics addressed are, far, are wide-ranging, and the speakers are more diverse. But it is no less important, no less spiritual, no less a matter of worship. Both chapel and convocation, like your classes, by the way, are about learning to love the Lord with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. And they are all crucial elements of a Westmont education. Second question, and the one you've been waiting for. Why are chapels required at Westmont? Good question. I asked it a lot when I was a student here. And the way I liked to ask it then was, how can you require someone to worship. Worship is voluntary. So why in the world would you ever, ever, ever require chapel? I was so smart. <laughs> well, I was right. You can't require worship. But remember, worship is anything that we do to glorify God. For the Christian, worship includes studying Chaucer and practicing the piano and playing soccer. No one can require you to do those things, and certainly no one can require you to make them an act of worship. But if you want to pass Dr. Delaney's course or get an A from Dr. Doctor, don't you love that, Dr. Doctor? You can say that over and over again, Dr. Doctor. Or if you want to succeed under coach, Coaches Wolf or Giuliano, work is required, tons of it. And the disciple of Jesus Christ will turn that work into an opportunity, not just for success, but for worship. The same thing goes for chapel. We cannot require anyone to worship here. We can help, but we can't make it happen. 
What we can say and what we do say is chapel is a crucial element of a Westmont education. Like the general education curriculum, everyone's got to take it. We don't test you on it. There are no exams covering the material in chapel, but we do take attendance. And we hope, I really hope anyway, that you forget all about attendance and just take advantage of this opportunity to come together, to be together, to learn, and to grow. You know, let me confess something to you. I feel about required chapel just like I feel about grading. I think they're both rotten ideas. I really do. When I was teaching, I didn't want my students to think about grades. I wanted them to think about content. One of the most discouraging moments in the professor's life is when you're in the midst of a really important class discussion and someone raises their hands and says, uh, Dr. Gady, is this going to be on the test? Ah, it's awful. At that moment, the test trivializes the importance of the topic. And I wish tests weren't necessary. But you know what? I needed those exams to motivate me to study when I was a college student. And I would have missed out on a great many worship experiences in the books and in chapel had that motivation not been there. That's a reality. It's a biblical reality. And it came with the fall. And it's a reality that you and I will face all our lives and beyond. We'll either get to work on time or we won't work. We'll either study torts in law school or we won't practice law. We'll either be a friend in need or we won't be a friend. And in the end, we'll either be followers of Jesus Christ or we'll follow someone else right off the deep end. Why do we have required chapel? Because it's important. As important as Chaucer for the English major or Mozart for a musician. And just as much work. And just like your classes or your home church or just about everything else in this imperfect world, you won't always like what you get in chapel, nor will you always agree with every speaker. That's okay, because sometimes the speaker will be wrong, and you and I can learn from their errors. But sometimes the speaker will be right, and the error will be our own. We won't like those times either, but it doesn't really matter. The question isn't did we like it, but did we learn from it? Let me confess something to you that's a little dangerous, but I'll do it anyway because it's the truth. I've gone to chapel services now for a couple of decades in a couple of different institutions, and I don't always like them. Why? Because I'm just like you, and I have particular tastes in music, in speakers, in theology. And sometimes what I taste when I come to chapel, well, tastes a little flat to me, or sour, or downright bad. But that's okay, because these services are not designed to satisfy my palate, but to satisfy my soul. They are designed first and foremost to be nutritious, to give me good food for thought, to open me up to foods I didn't know existed, to ideas I didn't know I needed to be confronted with. They're designed, in other words, to help me grow in character and wisdom and truth. And that, I'm afraid, will, always not, will, always, will not always be entertaining. You know, you and I live in a wonderful time as far as worship services are concerned because we have such a rich multitude of options available to us these days. We can go to churches of every variety and stripe you can imagine. But all this variety comes with a great danger. And the danger is that we can very easily become worship junkies, consumers of worship who shop around for the most delightful worship experience and only go to those places that make us feel the way we want to feel. 
But my friends, worship is not about how you or I feel. Indeed, it isn't about us at all. Worship directs us not to ourselves, but to the other, to the Lord of heaven and earth, who created all things and sustains all things and is our beginning and our end. Can you imagine having an audience with a king? Think of the greatest monarch of all time, maybe King David, Julius Caesar, or Queen Elizabeth. Can you imagine yourself going to their throne, bowing before them, talking with them, listening to their advice, and then walking away from the event and thinking only about yourself, whether you had a good experience, whether you were adequately entertained. Of course not. It's absurd. How much more absurd, then, to worship the King of Kings and do precisely that? Well, that's really all I have to say. But, you know, I can't bring myself to end here this morning. Because, you see, this discussion of attendance and worship tastes is really very petty, small potatoes. In the span of eternity, it's not really all that important. And besides, you're still trying to figure out why we read those passages from Ecclesiastes and Revelation at the beginning of the service, aren't you? So, here's a thought that is worth considering in the light of eternity. And I'll leave you with this. In the year ahead and in your lifetime or in your time at Westmont, you will have an opportunity through chapels and convocations that will most likely never occur again in your whole life. You may go to the greatest church in the world. You may attend every super conference that comes down the pike. But you will not get what you are getting here again. I'm telling you as an old man who's been there before, it won't happen. These times of gathering, these times of worship, these times of learning and growing and debating and crying together with these folks sitting beside you, they are special. For most of you, it won't happen again like this until, until eternity. What we are doing here on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 9.15 in the morning, well, what we're doing here is what my friend Jerry is doing right now in heaven with all the saints. And this is also what your friends and family who have loved the Lord and have gone before, this is what they're doing right now as well. And I think if we had any brains at all, this is what we would be doing with deep gratitude and great joy right now as well. There is a time for everything under, the, under heaven, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, a limited time. And for most of us, until we gather around the Lamb who sits on the throne, this is the appointed time. Let us make the most of it, for Jesus' sake. Let us pray. Lord, we ask again this morning with the angel, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And we confess again that we are not. But thanks be to God. You are worthy, O Lamb, our Messiah, our Jesus, our friend. Worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased us for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve you and reign with you. And we are deeply grateful.
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. At 9.15 on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Doctor. As we go into the singing part of this worship time, let us not forget exactly what the doctor has uh, instructed us. That this is just a part of it. In our Main Street evangelical ways, we have made even the music a greater part of even a worship service. This is only a part. But let it complete this day for us. Let it grow in us a desire to be more complete in our classes, in our play, in whatever we do.